So we're in our third week in the series on Hosea the prophet. It's a theologically rich prophecy. It's also kind of highly provocative. It's kind of PG-13 stuff. And so if you have young kids, cover their ears, okay? Um, <laughs> that's just the kind of thing it is. But it's very brutally honest about our relationship and how we've gone astray much like Gomer and been adulterous um, towards uh, the faithfulness and the covenant of God our Father. Um, I had an Old Testament professor years ago at Duke, and uh, he said uh, a warning to the seminarians one day. I, I remember it very clearly. He said, do not read Jesus back into the Old Testament. He said the Hebrew Scriptures can stand on their own. In fact, he said to read Jesus back into the Old Testament does the Hebrew Scriptures a grave injustice. I am so thankful I did not listen to that man. <laughs> I am hopeful that you haven't listened to so-called scholars in this world. Because every word, every book, every triumph, every trial that the Hebrew people went through, were all pointing us to Jesus, to the gospel of the reconciliation of God, to bringing his children back home. I mean, think about it for a moment. What have we learned so far in this tiny little prophecy of Hosea? What have we learned? Chapter 1, God says that, that Hosea, go and marry this woman of adultery and uh, have children with her. One of your children will be named not my people. But before you get out of that chapter, he looks forward to a, another prophecy. When not my people will have a name change and suddenly they'll be changed to the children of the living God. I think that's the gospel message. How does it happen? Well, the prophecy is clear in chapter 1, verse 11. The children of Judah, the southern kingdom, the children of Israel, the northern kingdom, shall be gathered back together. And guess what? They shall appoint for themselves one head. Who is that head? Who is that one leader? Who's that one Messiah? Who's that mediator and advocate between us and the Father? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. That can only mean Jesus. For the northern kingdom is about to fall in 722 B.C. to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians would come in and intermingle. They would take some of their people off in, in, uh, in captivity. And so they would destroy the northern kingdom in such a way that they would never be reconstituted as God's chosen people. They became known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Unlike the southern kingdom, when Babylon comes in in 587, they were allowed to come back home. These people were destroyed. So what does that mean? That they'll come home? That they'll be returning? It seems to mean that Jesus would provide a way one day as their one appointed head. You who are not my people will be called the children of the living God. That's a promise. And how will they come home? Father Tyler told us last week that Gomer is having an illicit relationship with other men. Hosea, you go get her. You go get her and pay a ransom, a price for her, and you bring her back home. Sound anything like Jesus, what he does on the cross for us as he pays a ransom for many? 700 years later, Jesus will say in Mark 10, 45, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he brings us back, one mediator, bringing us home. Later in chapter 3, he will place an offer before us. Return and seek the Lord 
Hosea says, and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and in his goodness in these latter days. The Bible says that we're living in the latter days. And these people will come back home through David. Well, guess what? David's dead. He's dead at this point. What, what do they mean? Could it be that somebody in the line and lineage of David will open up the doors of salvation to let his people come back home? I think so. I think that's Jesus. Isn't God amazing? His word is amazing. 700 years before Jesus is already pointing towards the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and his ransom for sinners slain. I want to look a little bit deeper. Chapter 6 this morning. If you have your Bibles, open that up. Uh, Hosea is the first of the minor prophets towards the back of your Old Testament, your Hebrew scriptures. Um, I want to look at chapter 6, verses 1 and following. How do we return to the Lord? Okay? Verse 1 says, come, let us return to the Lord. It's a call toward repentance, toward changing our old ways and, and pointing our hearts back to God. Now, what, what are the terms and conditions of that? What does that mean? That's what we want to look at this morning. The first step of returning to the Lord is repentance, metanoia in Greek. It means to turn your life 180 degrees around, finding out how you've drifted from God, finding out what idols you've allowed in your heart, and to get rid of them, and to let God be the center of your heart again. For we all do it, and we've got to take stock of it every now and then, of where we've drifted, how far have we gone. John Calvin once said this, the wonderful reformer said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory for idols. We're constantly producing idols in our lives. And anything that takes the center of our heart and the center of our lives, whether it be a lover or something that's loved, if it's anything other than God, that's your idol. So repentance, returning to the Lord, is taking spiritual stock of your life and turning away from those idols. Now, every Christian who's been a good example of the faith through the years has done that repetitively in their lives. And I, I call you with that word of return today. John Newton, a wonderful um, Anglican, uh, remember he was the writer of a hymn called Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, beautiful hymn. Another hymn that you probably know is Amazing Grace. Don't tell the Baptists that that's an Anglican song, Okay. <laughs> but you remember he had a former life as a slave trader he made money in the commerce of human beings and then he took stock of his life he returned to the Lord he repented of that former life he changed his ways became an abolitionist working against the slave trade of Africans in England and finally in 1807 they were successful he repented returned to the Lord did many great things but even in his greatness he never said, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I helped to get rid of slavery. Wrote that wonderful hymn. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and by golly, people love me. He didn't say that. Here's what he said. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Consistently constantly taking stock of your life, returning to the Lord, those things, taking those idols out, allowing him to come in. Every great Christian knows that that's the way 
of Christian faith and salvation. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, nailed 95 theses on a door of a church in Wittenberg. And the first thesis of those theses was this. When our Lord and Master Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of a believer should be one of repentance, constantly returning to the Lord. How do we return, though? Look at verse 1. Verse 1 will tell you that we return to the Lord with our hearts, with our hearts. Um, And also look at verse 6, and that, that gets really to the point. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I want your heart. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God, the great commandment, with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. Those three things. That's how we return. I want your heart on a deep, loving, intimate, personal relationship with Gomer who's gone astray after other lovers. I want you to come home, Gomer. I've paid the price for you. Come on home. I want your heart. You see, the Israelites have become stale in their worship. They were going through the motions of sacrifice and burnt offerings. Their hearts weren't in it. You see, burnt offerings and sacrifices were commanded by God, but not if your heart's not in it. In fact, in Isaiah, it would say, if your heart's not in this, then your worship is detestable before the Lord. Detestable. See, they were out to appease God, much as they would appease Baal. But God's not in it for that. He wants us to pursue his heart, to seek his face with true religion. Now, we as Anglicans know that that we have a beautiful prayer book tradition. We've got wonderful prayers that have been time-tested Our sacraments, our liturgy are so meaningful to to bring the people together in common prayer. But if you just rotely go through the service and your heart's not in it, you become very much like Gomer and the ancient Israelites. God wants your religion, but true religion where your heart is in it. We define our sacraments, communion, baptism, marriage, whatever it may be, as an outward and visible sign of God's inward and spiritual grace. If it's just an outward sign, it's detestable before the Lord. But when your religion is true, your heart enters in it, becomes wonderful and beautiful. How do we return to him? With our hearts. Secondly, with our minds, our intellect, our thoughts. Look at verse 3. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Come to him with your mind. Jesus will later say, I am the bread of life. Jesus will later say, I am the living water. How how long can you live without bread or water? Not very long. How, How long can you live spiritually without the word of God nourishing your soul as bread and water nourish your body? The Christian life is stark and barren and lifeless until we're in the Word. And we hear it and receive it. We understand God's love from it. His redeeming work through His Son. The Israelites had forgotten God's law. They'd forgotten God's Word. If you backed up to chapter 4, God says to them, You are perishing for the lack of knowledge of my Word. Press on to know the Lord, it says here. Unless you have a a time of scripture and Bible study or a small group, and then you're, you're, you're dying, you're perishing for lack of knowledge. Unless you have a, a spiritual devotion time when you pray to God and hear him and understand his love through meditation and prayer, 
you're perishing for lack of knowledge. And here we're called to, to press on to know me, the Lord says. And what's the promise? If you do, I'll bring showers and spring rains to your soul. So return to me with your mind, with your heart, and finally with your soul. Which brings us back to Jesus again. Remember we opened this message saying that this prophecy was written about 700 years before he came. That God was going to gather his people back together. That God was going to pay a ransom for their souls to bring them home. And that the people would return to their Lord. Remember the, the book of Hosea and all the promises outside of Jesus make no sense. Outside of Jesus this makes no sense. Remember the Assyrians are going to come in and, and attack the people and destroy the northern kingdom. They'll become the lost tribes. And they'll never have an edict welcoming them back home from a king. But there is a true king to come that will welcome them home. His name is Jesus. This Jesus will come to set his captives free. This Jesus will come to set the prisoners free from bondage, from sin and death. Look at verse 2. We see a, a hint of the gospel. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we might live before him. Isn't that so beautiful? I mean, for a Christian, we cannot help but see the resurrection of Christ in that. And as he is the first fruits of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, so we will be his second fruits. And just as he was raised to life before the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, so we will live and be raised to life with him. He was torn that he might heal his people. He was stricken that he might bind us up in his grace. Jesus is the great physician, folks. And if you don't see Jesus in Hosea, God bless you. Because uh, <laughs> you won't ever understand it. You need some help. <laughs> Isaiah 53 said it best. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. He was torn that he might heal us. He was stricken that he might bind us up. Do you think maybe that third day is Easter day for us? That on that day it would be the latter day when God would reveal the pathway home through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, God promises throughout the Bible that when those latter days come, that I will once again be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they tell my people you are not my people, but I will rename you children of the living God. Mm. Take stock today. Think of the ways that you have drifted away from the heart of God. If you've allowed any idols to creep into the center of your being, anything that you love more than God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, come back to Him. Return to the Lord. Repent. Come to Him with your mind and your heart and with your soul. Here's the invitation, though. It doesn't cost you a thing. It costs Jesus His life. It doesn't cost you a thing. Jesus does all the heavy lifting. And here's the last invitation that I'm going to give you. Revelation 22:17, the last book of the Bible says this. The spirit and the bride say come. Let the one who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He paid it all. He ransomed your soul. Thanks be to God.